The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. The looking glass being a reflecting mirror that um, one can step into as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. And beginning with a brief story that uh, was sent to me uh, from a Dharma teaching friend. What are you, my young son shouts gleefully at me several times a day over the past year. In his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move from one exhibit to the next. Initially, I tried to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically. No, your mama. My responses became mundane. I'm your mom. I'm a woman named Sally. I'm tired. I'm trying to put your shoes on. He was entirely neutral to any response. For a time, I was profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand understand this not as an irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became an invitation to wake up, my mindfulness bell, a tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at me. What are you? Exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of awareness. Answers still pop up, both mundane and philosophical in turns. I'm a river of being. I'm annoyed. I am adoring. I'm thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of life passing right through the open door of my mind. Rumi says, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your daily life experience perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question might be your mindfulness spell in disguise. Over a period of years during my childhood and then on through my adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, 
smaller and smaller. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror endlessly. Sometimes I was amazed, sometimes fascinated, intrigued at times. And if I thought about it very much, I'd be, be feeling perplexed. But mostly I was just really interested. Interested enough, in fact, that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write for high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. Right then, I had the distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. With the second universal characteristic being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure in the outer world of experiences and relationships, places, situations, or material objects. As well as in the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a secure, sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness but rather the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking, the ongoing rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all phenomena, its nature being to change and to pass away. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch. The most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this third truth is so basic, so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of 
stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, an idea of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and with the imagined context of the possible future, or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs, to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung-to and cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not actually asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for one moment. What we call self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly distinguishable phenomena or process that we can sense, feel, and see and know directly through our practice. One aspect that I've mentioned already uh, in a, a previous Dhamma talk, or maybe actually two previous Dhamma talks, that's readily available to know experientially is the body as a process, a process made up of many elements. So just a quick review, the characteristics of the earth element, which we sensorially experience all the time, hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The water element characteristics, flowing and cohesion, the fire element with its characteristics of heat and coldness, and the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements in constant, constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship with each other. Our so-called self is in constant flux. Just like the fast-flowing river on the other side of the road here in front of the Columbine Center. So in truth, 
there's nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to, nothing to identify with. Actions without an actor, doings without a doer, said the Buddha. As you probably know, at least to some degree, essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and practices eventually lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding and undoing confusion and anguish. The Buddha wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth that directly lead to the way of things. He was a teacher of a practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see ourself or more accurately begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're attached without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. The key to this is what can be called bare attention, which is a basic, unalloyed, pure form of mindfulness. It's a purely receptive state that attends, we could say, to the bare facts of perception without reacting to them, which means not commenting, not making something out with making something out of with making something out of what's being experienced, not doing anything about with what's being known. It's actually quite simple. It might not be so easy, but It's actually very simple. Bare attention allows things to speak, so to say, for themselves without the interruption of habitual judgments and final verdicts. What's being attended to with the mindfulness of bare attention allows each thing, allows each phenomena, allows each experience to finish its speaking, so to say. And then we learn, in fact, that things, that phenomena, actually have a lot to say about themselves, which formerly was pretty much usually mostly ignored or often drowned out by the 
inner noise of misperceiving, misjudging, and there the strain of over-efforting and impatience that we humans ordinarily normally live with. Bear attention sees things fresh, anew, as though for the first time, which then allows things to reveal something new, allows things to reveal something worthwhile with more and more frequency. We're then able to receive a wider and deeper horizon of understanding, of wisdom, that quite naturally opens for us in a seemingly effortless way. This way of attending to our experience is a training, a way to be practiced and practiced and to be learned. Along the way, bear attention is sustained for as long a time as our strength of concentration permits. So it's closely related to the development of our capacity for a focused attention. This quality of mind, as it's developed and as it matures, is really an incredibly rich source of inspiration, an incredibly rich source of understanding. In relationship to our meditation practice, our Dharma practice, and in relationship to our life as a whole. So here we are sitting in this retreat. And at some point, at home, maybe on your couch or on your cushion, and then at some point at work, whatever work you might be engaged in. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness are just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. The rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly is merely rising and falling. Remembering is just remembering. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these occurrences All of these things are merely, are just themselves. And as the great Thai meditation master and teacher Ajahn Chah says, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, conditional experience. There's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein then, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. 
It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. Some words from the Buddha. This is a teaching that he gave to his student, Nagiya. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Magiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. We experience this and we experience that. Everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation? without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we sense and see. So for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become. This is how we perpetuate continuing to become. This is how we know self. The Buddha had a most amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not Self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to mindfully investigate with willingness, humility, and bare attention, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation? 
without analysis or evaluation, but rather connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely, merely rising and falling. Merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body. Merely a thought, a, a rising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two. Just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts and bodily sensations and other sensory experiences, as well as feelings and mind states and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted ego can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts habits and self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up reduced relinquished and at some point finally eliminated it's through the actual not the conceptual but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, or we come to know not-self. And then, for just a moment or two, and eventually, finally, it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine, that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry ourselves around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes, all the fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things of life in the form of thoughts and feelings and various opinions and perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. 
But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you. It hasn't gotten you, gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep looking and we keep seeing. We keep living life. And in fact, living much more freshly and fully right in the moment, in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. Right here in retreat, and in our life outside of a retreat setting. A poem from the Zen Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. She calls this poem, or titles this poem, Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for an instant the actual instant, as if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So, for instance, <clears throat> do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensation therein? 
Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? Well, we might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot. Not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly, certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness is me. I mean... Without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to more, most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is that the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn. Look into your own mind and heart for just a moment right now. Close your eyes for a moment. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect. Let go of interpreting with the intellect. And just simply open and receive the words. Just simply and directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape? A color, a texture, is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? So maybe for a moment, with this little exploration, you sense and see its empty nature. Like experiencing zero, as one of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says. Like experiencing zero. 
in the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. And so the Buddha, coming directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditional phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors. No matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. It's often dependent on the feeling of pleasant, the feeling of unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It's dependent on mental labels, constructs, and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. To make this very clear to his students, the the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering. I'd like to share two short suttas from the Samyutta Nikaya. And these short suttas are in the form of conversations between the Buddha and one of his students. The first is between the Buddha and a deva. And if if you remember, devas are uh, beings that are quite pure, They have a lot of insight, a lot of understanding, but not yet totally free of suffering. So this deva is conversing with the Buddha. And the deva says, what produces a person? What does she or he have that runs around? What enters upon samsara? What is her or his greatest fear? From what is he or she not yet freed? What determines her or his destiny? And the Buddha responds to the deva. Craving is what produces a person. His or her mind is what runs around. A being enters upon samsara. Suffering is his or her greatest fear. He or she is not freed from suffering. Kama determines his or her destiny. 
And the next sutta, conversation sutta, is between the Buddha and Ananda, who was the Buddha's uh, chief disciple. Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable sir, it is said, empty is the world, empty is the world. In what way is it said, empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact. And the Buddha goes on through uh, each of the sense doors this way, each of the sense door consciousnesses in this way, ending with mind consciousness. Mind consciousness and whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant unpleasant or neutral. That too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. And again, some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. When one does not intend, and one does not plan, and one does not have a tendency towards anything, no basis exists for the maintenance of individual, or we could say self-centered consciousness. When there is no basis, there is no support for the establishing of this consciousness. When this self-centered consciousness is unestablished, and doesn't come to growth, there is no inclination. When there is no inclination, there is no coming and going. When there is no coming and going, there is no passing away and being born. When there is no passing away and being born, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. and offering a wonderfully simple poem by contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison, who died a couple of years ago. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full, sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'll offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening into an image 
in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. And beginning with closing your eyes. Visualizing in some way, or in some way sensing, an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. Letting this fill your mind, letting this fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time, its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now let the image, the felt sense, just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing, and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. 
This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of the wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There is no separate, no isolated, no independent you, no separate, isolated, independent me. And so now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, as my teacher Pawak Saidao says. Visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing, relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now, beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, let the heart rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixing on any cloud, just simply being aware of their rising, arising and moving and changing and passing away.
If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. And now let the image and the felt sense fade away. Let it dissolve. And just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind, open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who is aware? Who knows? Now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in, and we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there is No thing that satisfies. No thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. We understand that we 
can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror of ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, and at the same time more penetrating and more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of I, of me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems. The greatest sufferings we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. I wanted to share a a true story with you, a brief story. Uh, A friend of mine, some years ago, was suffering with this core loneliness. And so he decided to uh, seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. With advice from some friends, he picked a therapist who had a, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for this first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes and different shapes and different colors. And he set them down in the waiting room. This is true. And then he went out and got another load and (laughs) piled it on top of the first load. He told me and he 
told the therapist that he had to go around collecting uh, baggage from friends and family because he said he, he didn't have enough of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of his baggage in with him. And at some point during this first session, the therapist, in her great wisdom actually, asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he had brought in with him. And so he did this. And he found that there was nothing inside any of it. (laughs) A very wise therapist. It's certainly not every client that you could do this with. But this man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and really not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and then just simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story about this uh, that I really like that I'll share with you. It's a story of a woman who had uh, practiced for many, many years and had some powerful, expansive, and even some illuminating experiences. But still, she hadn't reached the goal. So she was getting up in years, and she was feeling that there wasn't much time left. And so she really, really wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she'd heard was able to turn the mind, turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and She called out to him, and he stopped, and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. She explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion, all of her anguish, and all of her striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up on the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. The old man stood still while she was talking and then briefly looked at her 
Then taking his time, he very slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and he briefly stood still. And again, slowly turning around towards the woman. And then he very carefully and slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain toward the village. So therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. And we keep exploring, sensing, and seeing, and understanding. And in fact, living life more freshly and more fully, right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things. This being the relative aspect of understanding not-self is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. In closing the talk with two pieces from a collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the the second inspired utterance of the Buddha from the Udana. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the scene only the scene, 
in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.